You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. So the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. You know, if you're looking to install some new windows or a new door, a great place to start with Pella is their showroom. Sometimes it actually helps to you know, see the windows, see the doors, open them, close them to get a better feel for exactly what you're going to be installing into your home. The showroom's really cool. They got showrooms in Omaha and in Lincoln. So go check them out. Or you can check Pella out online at PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Pop Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Everyone's looking for a way to spice up your next party. Well, if you're looking to take a party to the next level, the the highest level possible, I got the answer for you. The Runza Party Pack. The Runza Party Pack includes, wait for it, wait for it, a dozen mini Runza sandwiches, 50 mini corn dogs, and a 20-piece chicken strip with your choice of dipping sauce. Mm-mm-mm. Now that's a party I want to be at. Head to runza.com backslash party pack for more information today. Runza makes it all better. Okay, we got another great, great podcast for you. I mean, man, the pod is just on fire right now. So if you, if you haven't subscribed, do it. Just click that subscribe button. It helps me out. Helps you out to make sure you don't miss any of the great content that we are dropping. It is a win-win if you subscribe to the pod. So do that, and while you're there, leave a five-star rating and a review. Uh, on the pod today, one of the best writers and sports minds, Dirk Chatlin, Omaha World Herald, is my guest. And you know, I have this kind of Dirk alarm set in my brain for every two, three months to get him on the pod. And Man, we, we touch on a bunch of different stuff. Tons of Nebraska football stuff, tons of Creighton hoops, tons of Nebraska hoops. And then at the end, we have some fun with some other topics that I think you guys are going to really enjoy. This was outstanding, man. Dirk's a he's a deep thinker. He's someone I just love talking sports with. You know, like he's Dirk Challenge is just a great podcast guest. You just kind of turn the mics on, you can throw anything at him football, basketball, recruiting, big picture, parenting, whatever. Like the guy's just. He can he he's got thoughts on it all. It's just you know when you get get Dirk on the pod, it's going to be great. Forty five to sixty minutes, man. So let's get to it. Here is my podcast chat with the Omaha World Herald's Dirk Chatlin. Enjoy. See, this is the difference between radio guys and newspaper guys. Radio guy is punctual. He says he's calling a twelve. Yep. And he calls a twelve. Yep. Newspaper guy says he calls it. He's calling a twelve, and he calls it twelve twenty six. So. <laughs> So, so we're already drawing the line on why why I am different, not better than you, but I'm just different than you, I guess. That's well, a, that's I think part point. of it is you're on a you're on a, a child nap schedule that I'm also not on, so you are aware of what the clock says at all oh, times. So. I my my clock awareness right now, shot clock, nap clock awareness is like you know it is. You get it down to a science of like, hey, I got till about. You can kind of gauge how they went down too. You're like, eh, yeah, they they were falling asleep halfway through the bottle. We got we we're gonna have a good two two hours and forty five minutes or or the other way around like oh man they were fighting it I mean you can you can figure all that stuff out you know is that really he's you're good for two and a half three hour nap that's that's extensive it's pretty good right now so so little man is ten months old and I mean he gets 
I mean, I would say it's two. We haven't gotten to. We haven't had a three hour nap in a long time. I mean, I would say it's two, two and a half. Which man? Okay. Is there anything better than when you're? It's just you and a ten month old or your baby, and you put them down, and you know you got two hours, and you can just like do whatever you want to do. Is that the greatest jars of your life? I think it is. Or just, or just match his two and a half hour nap with your <laughs> two and a half hour nap. With with their with the baby monitor being your alarm clock. <laughs> I mean, yes. I've done better. it. You've done it. We've all done it. There's nothing better than this. This is. Does he, uh, sleep? Does he sleep through the night? Right now, he's knock on wood. I want you to hear. I'm knocking loud. Right now, wow. he is. I mean, he is. He is a down about seven thirty, up about seven seven thirty every every this night. Sounds right now. like a perfect child. Well, here's a couple of things. The one thing my wife did that I thought was absolutely stupid the first time she showed me this. We basically, when we put him in the crib, he is surrounded by eight to ten binkies. He's got a <laughs> binky in his mouth, and he is surrounded by eight to ten binkies. And I initially was like, uh, you know, she was like, they, I read something that they can grab the binky and put it in their mouth. I'm like, he's not going to be it. You're telling me at 2.30 in the morning he's going to be able to execute that? No way. Well, after about a month, homeboy... I mean, if he wakes up, he's just grasping for binkies, pops them in his mouth, he goes right back to sleep. If he's sleeping in a pile of binkies, he will find a binky. <laughs> I mean, so that's pretty much what that I would say of, like, what's the secret? I'm like, just, just have it be like, a you know, you go play at, like, the McDonald's play place. There's just, like, you're in the ball pit. <laughs> like, make it a binky pit. A binky pit. Oh, my gosh. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. You should... <laughs> Good. You guys should totally write a book about this. Yes, this has the got binky, serious potential. The b- binky sleep, and it's just a picture of me holding a binky, and that's that's all it is. You know. That's, oh man, that's good. That's great. This is good. Well, you know what? Usually, I thought we'd. I want to keep this in the pot, so we're we're off and running. Okay, okay? I want. Yeah, we're, we are great. off and running. This is uh this is grade A material in my book. Uh, <laughs> I I love it. I hey, real quick, you know. So it's interesting. I and I. For some reason, I do this with some guests, some I don't, but I sent you some of like the topics and the questions I had and, and your response was like, geez, you're really organized. And I, what, what I, what I've done because of my radio background being solo is I write out everything. Like I, I wish people could see, like when I would do a solo radio show, Dirk, I bet I had 15, 10 to 15 pages written every day with my takes, my questions, my teases, my whatever, like everything was written out because for some reason being by myself, I had this irrational fear that I was going to lose my train of thought. And when you're by yourself, there's no one to like lean on. So I, I, I got into this habit of writing everything out. I'm curious how you and, and an, an interview, a podcast, radio interview is different than like if you're interviewing someone for your 24th and glory book, like, right. do you write out everything? How do you, how do you go? What's your process like there? Well, it's a good question. It's something that I think about a lot. It's something that I talk to students about a lot. Um, I think the big thing is, you know, and you, to your credit, you know, you didn't write out every question, uh, but you sort of create an outline. And I think a, I think a general outline of where you want to go with the conversation is, is usually valuable. Uh, the difference, though, uh, and it's especially important when you're interviewing people within sort of a time structure is just to, you got to be a really, really good listener. So the thing that people, and you do it, and, you know, I try to do it, uh, great interviewers do it. You're constantly listening intently, 
where when something is said that's interesting or you didn't expect on the other end, uh, you sort of pounce on that, you know, and you, you might carve out another 10 minutes just based on on something small that was said or something that you perceived. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's kind of the typically the best conversations go in places that we're not planned to go. Right. And, you know, I can't say that it's that you're lucky to be that way in every interview, but I think that's really important. And, and it just comes back to being a really, really good listener. If you're laying out, you know, seven questions and, and that's where we're going to go. Uh, generally you're going to get pretty boilerplate answers for those seven questions. Yeah. I, you know, because not only have to be a good listener, but within that you got to be a good decision maker on what to pounce on. And then once you pounce on it, okay, we're on the interstate. How, okay, all of a sudden we're going to exit off onto this, this thing you just said. Well, how, how far are we going to stay off on this exit before we get back on the interstate? Like there's an, there's an art to that, that I still feel like it, I know for me, I still feel like I am, I'm trying to get better at, because I also kind of, when I wrote a bunch of stuff down for you, before I know it, I wrote two pages and I'm like, you can also try to tackle too much. You know, like, would you rather, would you rather get, 15 questions in and go baby pool depth on all of them or have five topics and get real deep on all of them. I mean, you're, there's yeah. kind of no right or wrong way, I guess. No, that's exactly right. If you're pulling off the interstate with two kids in the back seat, you know, <laughs> that fast food restaurant better be pretty darn good. Yes. So, yes. Um, but you know, to, to your point, I, I think it's, um, it's one of the reasons, and I'm not making an argument for the superiority of, of you know, newspapers, but it, it is one big benefit of being in my shoes versus your shoes, because, you know, I can if you if you take a an interstate exit and it doesn't pay off, um, you know, that's that's part of the conversation, ah, especially yeah. if you're on radio. Yeah. If I if I do that and it, you know, it, it right. flops. Uh, I just don't use it. Yes. Right? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so I think that's one big benefit, and uh, you've got to be a little bit more disciplined in your decisions than I do. That's. A, I didn't think about that. Yeah. You can you can take that exit, and if you know the if the fast food joint is closed, whatever, you just get right back on the interstate and you keep it moving. I didn't think about that, but uh, yeah. Man, I, you know, so we're kind of in that. Uh, uh, no man's land, part of the the sports calendar, at least from a local perspective. And so I wanted to get you on because I love I love picking your brain. I told you I joked that I have like a Dirk alarm in my head. Like every two to three months, I want to I want to get into a habit of talking to you. Um, so let me let me kind of j- jump into the conversation with this because I want you to go back to when the Rutgers game ended right before I think it was December nineteenth, and then here we are on we're recording this on May eleventh. Do you feel? better do you feel worse do you feel the same about nebraska football in general and and even the next season considering everything that's happened during that time where you lose luke mccaffrey and wandell robinson but almost every player of note defensively is coming back uh you have spring football which have a lot of different things you can kind of take away from you have kind of the classic uh story of of people pouncing on it and 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 shaking their head the Oklahoma game debacle where they were trying to get out of that game even little things like you add Fordham to the schedule early in the year like taking all that into consideration Dirk like where do you fall on feeling better worse or the same about Nebraska at this point well I don't think my opinion has changed a whole lot okay but you would you would think that it had based on uh, what you just said were the two the two big storylines I think of the past five months were the departures of McCaffrey and Robinson, uh, and then the Oklahoma game that was uh, maybe the biggest PR disaster 
that I've seen in, you know, 10 years of Nebraska football, um, probably going back to the, you know, to the Callahan era. And it's, if you just looked at those two things, I think you would say, boy, Nebraska's in a really rough place. Um, but at the same time, I think Nebraska is going to have its best defense in probably, you know, potentially 10 years, uh, probably at least five years. Um, you know, I think the, the player development on the offensive and defensive lines does appear to be getting better. The wide receiver position does appear to be getting better. Um, I, I think, you know, Nebraska is, is just sort of holding steady, I think. They're, mm-hmm. they're not – I don't think that that it's panic mode. Uh, I do think, though, that one thing that has changed, and this is different, this is definitely different, is that there is a level of uh, skepticism bordering on cynicism. Uh, I wouldn't even necessarily call it apathy. Uh, there have been times where it's you know been apathetic in the fan base. I think this offseason is a little bit different. I think it's just it's more of a you know, roll your eyes type yes. of feeling. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, it's obviously not a hundred percent of the fan base. It's probably not even, you know, 50%, but it's, it's a significant chunk. I mean, I would guess it's probably 20 to 30% of the fans who, who have just kind of distanced themselves uh, with an attitude that I will reinvest my time and energy when Nebraska football proves that it's worth it again. Uh, and that, that is not, uh, again, that's not typical, and I'm not sure that that's a good thing for Scott Frost. Uh, and it points me to a belief that I think we all had in December when the Rutgers game ended, which is that, that this fourth season is really, really critical. And I, I just don't think there's any way around it. And we say that a lot. We say that almost every year. Um, but but this really does to appear to be a, a year where I think people by the end of the season – will have sort of made their determinations about Frost's, you know, success at Nebraska. I don't think he's going to lose his job. Right. But I think, I think, you know, six months from now, people will, will kind of have their, um, I, I think that the camps pro camp, you know, pro Frost, anti Frost will be more, uh, will be more distinct, will be more defined than they are right now. And I think, you know, a lot of it is going to come down to just how many games they win this fall. There's, right. It's just sort of a no excuses mentality right now. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Everybody that knows my athletic background, you know, as a quarterback in high school. But, you know, I believe in establishing the run game. And even more than that, I believe in establishing the Runza game. That's an original Runza cheeseburger, some onion rings, double dipped in a homemade batter, little bit of a pop to top it off. You know, in football, you establish a run. But at lunch, you establish the Runza. It's just that simple. So get out to Runza today and establish the Runza game or check out the delicious salads. You've got the chicken bacon ranch salad, sweet berry chicken salad, and my personal favorite, the Southwest chicken salad. you got to get out to Runza, establish a Runza game, or get a salad. Either way, you are going to leave satisfied. Runza makes it all better. Yeah, you know, because I... I, I I was thinking about that, where if you do kind of go through the years, year one, you can kind of go, hey, listen, it's year one. No matter what happened, you can you can say that. Year two, you could even still say, hey, man, it's year two, the culture's getting set, all that stuff. Year three was COVID, if you want to use that and point to that as, you know, as a tough season. If anybody needed spring ball, it was Nebraska, yada, yada, yada. I don't know what the readily accessible excuse is for this season and and... Considering that they're twelve and twenty heading into it, 
man, it makes for a lot of interesting. It's going to be. I'm I'm really fired up for this season because of of what we're saying. There is no there is no thing to point to to kind of explain away a bad year. Even listen, I get the schedule's hard, but like. I also, we're not expecting 10 or 11 wins, right? Like, right. so I think it's all relative too. That's right. And, and if you, you know, if you go back and look at say the last, oh, 20, 25 years, um, you know, every coach sort of has that turning point season and often they, they end with, you know, they end with a thud. It really, when it goes bad, it really goes bad in the case of Callahan and, you know, Callahan and Riley, yep. for instance, um, but, but this seems to be a little bit different situation because people, you know, I still think generally want Scott to succeed really, really badly. I, I don't get the sense that there's anybody that's personally out to get him uh, or that there's any sort of political environment where, you know, you're rooting against Scott just because of, of who he is or something like that or, or the philosophy that he has. Uh, but, I, but I just so, – so that's my way of saying I think he's going to get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but at the same time, you know, year four is year four is a long ways down the road. And, and I think I, if I have a regret, Nick, it's just that for, for, for the sake of Nebraska, I just feel like they kind of wasted a couple of years. You know, it's just yeah. defensively where they are. I feel like that's where they should be offensively right now. And I just think that their their mismanagement, some of their identity issues, they're completely whiffing on skill position players. Uh, specifically at, at wide receiver, but also at running back. Uh, I just think that that's set their offense back in a way that it's almost like they are effectively in year two as opposed to year four. Um, and that's not an excuse. It's really not. But I think it just, in my opinion, they, they sort of have the characteristics uh, offensively of a program that's that's maybe in its second year. And, and when you, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, um, you know, I think the the fans of Frost would say, you know, give him more time, give him more time. Uh, but man, they are they are a long way offensively behind where we thought they were going to be. Yeah, I mean, just think about think about if this offense just progressed at an average rate of what we expected. Not necessarily saying they're leading the na- leading the country in scoring, but think about how excited and how special this season could be shaping up to be where you have a senior-laden, experienced defense that returns a lot of a lot of starters. You have a four-year starter at quarterback. Think if think if you hit even just a little bit on some of those skill position guys, you this we could be talking about something really special for this year, but because of one side of the ball's struggles, it it makes it kind of frustrating as you're saying you feel like you're kind of wasting like man I don't know I'm hard-pressed to think like this defense is I don't want to say as good as it's going to get under Chenander but I don't know man I mean this this feels like from what we anticipated expecting from the program and and thinking about what this side of the ball can be and what that side of the ball can be this is about as this is a a pretty rock solid defensive side of the ball and it's just unfortunate that it it might get wasted on the other side of the ball the offense not being ready for it. Yeah, and I, and I always look at the sort of the big picture perspective of this stuff because, you know, I I obviously don't know football as well as um as well as a lot of people do, but but I I do feel like I you know, I try to step back all the time and just and, and say, okay, look at context, look at perspective. And if you would have said, 
you know, even two years ago, that Nebraska will not be able to push the ball downfield. Nebraska will not be able to find speed at wide receiver uh, in, in years two and three, especially. Uh, you know, their their quarterback position will be will be a mixed bag at best. I mean, based on Frost's track record, they, they won't be able to find a, a running back with speed, a guy who hits the big play. Uh, if you would have just taken that all into consideration two or three years ago, it would have been really hard for people to believe. Yeah. I mean, just based on all the information that we had coming in, I think if there was one safe – you know, one safe thing that you could sort of build on, it was that Nebraska is going to have skill players, right? Nebraska is going to be able to, is going to be able to get the chunk plays and they just, man, for all sorts of different reasons, it hasn't happened. And then when you consider the, you know, kind of with that, all the little management issues, I mean, their special teams, their red zone success or lack of success, their turnovers, their, um, you know, there's just, it's just all these little plagues that, that just have set this program back. I don't feel like they should be as far away as they are. You know, right. it's, it's like I, I was telling uh, a colleague of this last week, if you took like the 50 check marks or boxes that make up a good football team, Nebraska is just like terrible in about 10 of them, you know, just terrible <laughs> in, in, you know, pass rushing. Uh, they're just, yeah. They're, they're like an F, right. you know, in, in about 10 categories. And until you turn those Fs into Cs, at least, um, you know, to where it's not just killing your grade point average, you know, I, I just don't know how Nebraska is going to get over the hump. So I think it's a combination of, you know, not having this go quite the way they thought from an identity standpoint. And on top of that, they just haven't been very efficient in in minimizing their weaknesses you know they're just they still have a lot of of just bad areas that that if they can just make mediocre i think it would make a big difference yeah you know it's we've kind of we've we've kind of talked about this before in a lot of our previous conversations but it's kind of interesting how when you let the off you let the season in the off season plays out the dust settles you think about things and it can kind of lead you to places where it kind of makes sense and What's funny is your NFL draft column the other week on Nebraska kind of solidified my thoughts of what I was thinking because it was eye-opening to actually see the numbers and have them kind of line up to what I was hypothesizing. And, you know, this isn't to completely absolve actual coaching in this conversation, but, you know, you talked about those check marks and being Fs and all those things like... I think Nebraska's had just a major, massive talent issue. And the lack of NFL draft picks kind of back that up because the NFL draft is the ultimate truth teller on your on talent level in your program. And I mean, the one part of your column that stood out to me was where you wrote, based on players drafted in the top four rounds of the past five years, here's the Big Ten tally. And I, I mean, it's Ohio State 33, Michigan 21, Penn State 13, Iowa 13, Wisconsin 8, Michigan State 6. Indiana, Maryland, Purdue, Northwestern, all with three. Northwestern, Illinois with two. Rutgers, one. Nebraska, zero. Dirk, zero. I guess when I look at those numbers, how where do you come out on sizing up the talent versus coaching debate with a lot of Nebraska football struggles over the last, really, Frost tenure, but really past five years? Yeah, it, it goes back really to the end of the – I would say it probably originates in the last, you know, two or three years of the Pliny era. Uh, I thought Nebraska's recruiting kind of stagnated. But at the same time, they've had a lot of volatility. They've had, you know, a lot of change in in scheme, uh, a lot of different voices. Uh, You know, their staff hasn't been 
not much continuity. Um, and it just feels like the player development machine is kind of broken down. And I'm sure you could, you know, you could look at strength and conditioning. You could look at, uh, you know, assistant coaching technique and all that stuff. You could probably break down Greg Austin versus Milt Teneper and do that all day. But uh, I just, it's, to me, it's a combination of probably, you know, three or four or five little things. Uh, you know, the, the recruiting is part of it, but I also think Nebraska's just inability to turn an 18 year old kid who's pretty good, has some nice potential uh, into a, into a 21, 22 year old, you know, all conference type of guy who becomes an NFL draft pick that has just been missing. They just haven't done a good job of that. And at the same time, you know, they're really lacking the the just total difference maker. You know, the guy who just jumps off the screen at you. And that's, you know, that's obviously your Indomitian Sioux, Amir Abdullah type player. Uh, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword. And Nebraska hasn't had good depth. They haven't had good player development. And at the same time, they're not getting, they're certainly not maximizing the high-end talent that you need to compete against um, you know, against the Big Ten's best teams. Now you could look at that and say, well, okay, fine, but Iowa and Wisconsin aren't doing that either. But I think it reiterates the point that what those schools have been able to do in their system is pretty extraordinary. I mean, you look at Iowa's NFL success compared to Nebraska's, oh my God. and it's just, it's extraordinary. And I think, you know, identity has something to do with that, though, Nick, because, you know, you look at, while Nebraska was, was chasing uh, Maurice Washington and Wandale Robinson. You know, Iowa was bringing in its its next class of of you know three star tight ends that it's that it's going to put into the player development machine, and they're going to be you know NFL draft picks in a couple of years. I mean, uh, you know Noah Fant, George Kill, T.J. Hawkins, and all those guys. Uh, you know, they were they were fine high school players, but but they're not necessarily five stars. And Nebraska, I just feel like it's a little bit of an identity issue where they don't quite know what they are. Uh, I feel like they're getting closer to that, to where they're being, they're, they're attacking it on the recruiting level a little bit more like, okay, what's available to us? What types of players can we actually get and develop? Because I feel like the, the whole speed and space thing Mm. that Frost was known for has just been a total flop. Yep. Yep. You know, and I've, I mean, I'm sure people are, I've said this on a million different pods, but like, I I mean, when it comes right down to it, there are certain there are certain positions. If you have a specific identity or system that you have to hit on, you just have to. Like Greg McDermott has to have Mitch Ballock. He just does. Like you have to have shooters. Like if you want to play that way, you got to have shooters. Nolan Richardson back in the day. You want to press for forty minutes. You better have Cornelius Williamson. You better have guys that are are disruptive defenders. Can guard multiple positions. Otherwise, your system is going to become your your. It's everything's going to suffer. And for whatever reason that it's just, it's mind blowing. Scott Frost's inability to find a difference making running back has eluded him. And then the inability to find any wide receivers has eluded him as well. And it's interesting, you know, Sam McEwen wrote about it with, you know, Nance and Houston leaving Nebraska here over the last week. It's, it is, I, I, I've looked at this and I still feel like I have to go and fact check it to say it out loud. Every 2017, <laughs> 2018 and 2019 wide receiver recruit is now gone from Nebraska. Like you have to, I don't even know if that's possible. I, I, I don't even, I don't even see how that's even a, a thing that occurs, but it just speaks to 
missing at key spots and how there's an enormous domino effect depending on the value of that specific spot in that system. Well, and Nick, look what it does to your quarterback play. I'm not absolving Adrian Martinez of the mistakes that he's made, but but clearly he would have been a lot better player over the last two years had he had the same weapons at wide receiver and running back that Scott Frost had at Oregon or UCF. I mean, oh, it's just, yeah. The domino effect that you're talking about is, is, is just extraordinary. And uh, again, I think Nebraska, it, it's almost like, I mean, you can say it was hubris or arrogance, uh, or you could say it's just the natural development of a coaching staff where they come in and they think they're going to be able to do something and they can't do it. And they sort of have to reset but again, it doesn't it feel like they're in, it's, it's sort of like year two on offense instead of year four. And yeah. if, if you look at it from that perspective, I guess maybe you feel a little bit more optimism for the program. You say, well, you know, they just had a couple of false starts and they're going to figure it out. Uh, but the other, the flip side of that, the critics would say they don't know what they're doing. Right. Uh, they don't, they don't know how to compete in this division of this conference. And I think a lot of that is going to play out over the next six months. We'll have a better idea, but it, it really does reiterate just the damage that it's done to the program in the inability to, uh, to recruit, identify, develop, uh, those skill players on offense that were such a key part of Frost's uh, resume coming in here. Yeah. I just, the more I, uh, you know, consume college sports, college basketball, college football, and the more I think about Nebraska struggles, whether it's even basketball or football, like I just, I'm at the point where I just think talent evaluation is enormously important. And I, I look at a guy like Dana Altman, and I actually think there's a lot of reasons he's great. And one of, honestly, I mean, he's one of, he's probably the best college basketball coach that people don't immediately write down when you think of great basketball coaches in, at the college level. But I think he is an elite talent evaluator, elite. And there's an art to that when you're, especially when you're not at the Ohio State, Clemson, or Duke, Kansas, North Carolina part of the of of the the football or basketball world and for whatever reason and and maybe it's more so what has what you're talking about when they got on campus it didn't play out right but I just I don't know I also don't know if I've seen a lot of guys that I see the tools the ball of clay if you will that that has something that could be made into something special so just something something's been awry with the talent evaluation as well yeah, I mean, at least when you look at Omar Manning, you say, "Oh, okay, I get it." Yep. You know, I, I see I see where this could go if it all works out. Uh, but yeah, there's been a lot of guys that that didn't appear to have the ingredients of being a, a special player when he came on campus either. And um, I, again, I think I think the frustrating part of this is that you know I look at it and I say, "Okay, uh, you know, you're trying to bring in a bunch of guys from." 500,000, 2,000 miles away. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're not necessarily taking advantage of the natural recruiting resources. Um, You know, I look at some of the guys that have, that typically come out of the Midwest. And I, again, I think Nebraska is kind of getting the hang of this now, but it's, it's a little bit more Thomas Fedoni and a little bit less, you know, Wandale Robinson type thing. Right. Um, And, you know, it's, it's hard to keep those kids from a thousand miles away. It's hard to keep them happy in this climate anyway, especially if your program isn't winning. Um, So I think Nebraska needs to lean in a little bit more to the, 
to the bigger personnel um, to be, uh, you know, utilizing the, the West coast offense, almost like versatility of, of tight end play. Uh, you know, you, there's Austin Allen's and Thomas Fedoni's and, you know, Chris Hickman's and Noah Fance and Cam Jurgens. you know, there's a, there's a tight end or two like that every single year in Nebraska. And it's, I think Nebraska can be that, you know, that type of offense in the same way that Iowa has become that type of offense. And I think they're, they're sort of understanding that now. Uh, but the, the struggles to get to this point have been pretty frustrating. I want to go back to Adrian Martinez for a second because, and I wrote this down, like, because I, I was thinking about Martinez. It, it's what's weird is I, I would say I believe in Adrian Martinez, uh, Martinez more than I believed in Tommy Armstrong, yet their records as starting quarterbacks would make you think I'd, I am an idiot. And maybe I am. I, I don't, I just look at their, their skill set, their abilities, and I just feel like Adrian has more talent at the quarterback spot than Tommy does. But I think what it points to is what you pointed to of like, well, look at who was around Tommy and look who was around Adrian. And that's kind of how I explain away what has happened in the regression of Adrian Martinez. But maybe Adrian Martinez is like my five-year-old daughter playing soccer and I'm just, I'm going to, she's Mia Hamm no matter what happens here, you know? Yeah, I think the hard part about Adrian and and it was, you know, it was certainly true of some of Nebraska's past quarterbacks too, is, is just the, just the inefficiency stuff. It's the, and, and you can put some of that on supporting pass. You can put some of that on coaching. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of different variables. I, I don't want to put it all on one thing, but, but, you know, when Adrian Martinez, uh, it, it can't complete a simple throw that every division one quarterback has to complete. There's like these deal maker, you know, it's like a deal breaker throw. Uh, you know, that's not a good sign when you've started 35 or 40 games. When, when, when your guy that started 35 or 40 games has four turnovers, you know, against a bad team, that's not a good sign. You can't pin, pin all of that on supporting cast. And it's just, I really like Adrian Martinez's skill set. Uh, I think that he's still got a lot of potential. I think if he has a good year, you know, that's the type of guy that you could see being an NFL quarterback. But at the same time, it's like he has played a lot of football and he's still making a lot of mistakes. You know, a lot of things that he's doing that the head coach at, you know, even Wyoming or, um, you know, Missouri State would would get on him for. I mean, it's just – I don't know what, what hasn't progressed there. It's not like he has, you know, a lack of coaches in her, in his ear. I mean, there's lots of quarterback gurus on that staff and yet Adrian just hasn't made the jump. And, and frankly, you know, Luke McCaffrey didn't make the jump either. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's, there's some hope for, for Harburg, for instance, um, and maybe even smothers, but, but the quarterback development at Nebraska the last three years hasn't been anything to hang their hat on no. either. no. You're right. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that – has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key. 
for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Do you, do you ever think Bill Moose goes into his office, shuts the door, locks it, sits down. <laughs> it takes a nap. Takes a yes, nap. Yes, takes a nap. And, no, and and just kind of says to says to himself, "What the hell? Like what? What the hell is happening? I I got two home run hires at the time. Two guys that I was not given a B, a B plus. I got an A plus for getting Scott Frost and Fred Hoiberg. I got these guys. Like at the end of the day, there's a lot of different things an athletic director is supposed to do. But the one thing that they are going to be ultimately judged on is hiring the right coaches at the the big big programs for your athletic department on paper i did that and it's been a disaster like i don't get it do you think he ever just like is like what is happening <laughs> i bought the best turkey at the grocery <laughs> store i got all the best ingredients and you still screwed up thanksgiving how dinner. what the heck what is happening yeah no it's a great point i mean i think <laughs> It's just this odd dynamic. It's like a paradox where Nebraska fans love the idea of their head coaches. Like they still love the theory of the head coaches. And and yet, you know, watching those coaches teams play in practice uh, or, or on the actual field is, is like, uh, wait a second, something, something went awry here. I think, you know, Hoiberg as badly as the first two years went there, there probably is a little bit more, understanding yes. of what has happened yes. and i think um you know based on his his talent personnel talent and personnel this coming year you know i think he probably there should be a pretty pretty good upswing um but yeah it's a great point nick i think i i think these ad's you know they got so much stuff on their plate anyway uh they're dealing with you know contracts and facilities and all this stuff and i think you know, they, they, they hire the right guy and they just want to turn over the actual performance stuff to the coach. Uh, and I, and it's just, it hasn't worked out. I mean, I think Moose, you know, two or three years ago, I think he probably walked out of that Fred Hoiberg press conference and felt like, you know, he was 40 years younger. He probably felt like he was on top of the world and, um, you know, Nebraska athletics, the, the two, two main sports are, are still really, really struggling as much as anybody in the league is. And right. uh, I think you just have to have faith that that's, if you're in Moose's chair, you have to have faith that that's going to work out. I want to, I want to shift gears real quick and talk a little hoops. And I have a bunch a, a few other kind of things I want to bounce off and I'll let you run. Um, what a, I mean, wow. What a, what a tumultuous few months for Creighton basketball here, the highs and the lows and the, I mean, it's just, you have Greg McDermott's locker room controversy late February the team seemingly kind of steadies the ship and breaks through to the Sweet 16. Then after the season, the entire starting five leaves, although that's a little misleading because some of these guys were seniors and I don't know, you know, there aren't necessarily a lot of guys that are taking that super senior year. But nevertheless, the entire starting five leaves. Christian Bishop is one of those guys that transfers. Two assistant coaches, Wrencher and Lusk leave. Um, give me your, cause sometimes I will admit I am, t- I am too close to it to maybe see it for what it is. Give me your state of the union on Creighton basketball real quick here, Dirk. Well, the fact that you're so close to it, uh, makes me feel like an idiot for, for, you know, telling you what I think, but, um, I, I don't, 
I'm not startled at all by the fact that Creighton lost all five starters. I think that was more than likely going to happen anyway. Yep. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure those guys um, have some of them more than others have a bad taste in their mouth based on what happens uh, with McDermott. I, I have no doubt about that. Uh, but having said that, I think more than likely all those guys were going to leave anyway. I think, you know, Zagorowski was probably going to be the first domino and, um, you know, Mahoney and Jefferson are, are older players. And, you know, at that point, if you're Christian Bishop, why am I sticking around to play with, you know, with a brand new roster um, and potentially sort of ruining my good experience here? So I'm not I'm not startled by the roster stuff. I, I think that um, what's what's a little bit concerning is just. Creighton was kind of the hot program in terms of, you know, the way that you can play in our system, the way that, you know, we can make you look, you're going to shoot a bunch of threes, you're going to score 90 points. Um, You know, we've been putting a lot of players in the NBA. Uh, Creighton was sort of up and coming in that sense. And, and I think still might be, but it is concerning long-term how this damages their image and their recruiting and their ability to bring in talent um, compared to what it was 12 months ago. Uh, I just don't think there's any way around that. I think, you know, the coaching staff, I think McDermott and Rasmussen would probably acknowledge that, that it's going to be a challenge to sort of rebuild Creighton's uh, image and reputation, at least in some parts of the AAU circuit. Um, so that would be my biggest concern. I think it's a really interesting contrast when you look at the last time Creighton had to completely reset like this, which is 2014, seven years ago, um, you know, they were going into the big East the second year of the big East. And there was a real, I think, acknowledgement with fans, sort of an understanding that, okay, this is going to be a serious rebuild here while the program sort of rebuilds its, uh, you know, its roster and tries to recruit a big East roster. And, And McDermott successfully did that over the course of about, you know, one to two years by year three, they were really up and running and, and could compete again with, with the best teams in the big East. I'm not sure that the fan base is going to have the same level of patience with, uh, you know, with an extended rebuild, if it's necessary, Mm -hmm. you know, I think once you get, you sort of get a taste of, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just like everything, you know, once you've, you've been around the same people for a long time, you have a little bit less patience when things don't go well. Um, and I think if this thing, you know, plays out over an extended period of time, I think there is going to be a little bit more impatience with McDermott uh, than you might expect based on the fact that he just went to the Sweet 16. Yeah, that, I think I I tend to agree with everything you just kind of laid out there. I think it's, uh, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, the expectation things moving forward, I don't even think I know quite how to answer that question. Um because it was clearly laid out, like you said, seven years ago, and then there clearly was that goal of the Sweet 16 that was the ultimate like thing at the end of the of of the line. And now I'm not totally sure what that looks like. And then the recruiting, the recruiting world is is the most concerning thing. I mean, they lost their top recruit, Ty Ty Washington. And then let's be honest, since the end of the season here, Dirk, you you've had a lot of openings. You know, with the five the five starters leave, and it's been really quiet on the recruiting yeah. front. And the only guy they've gotten is a Division two guy that is really intriguing. But you, you mean the only guy they've really gotten is this Ryan Hawkins, a a, a D two guy from Northwest Missouri State. Like that's it. And so you kind of go, mm, uh oh, like that. That would be the if I'm if I would say there's one thing that is really like 
the most code red to me. It's it's what's happening there. Yeah, and I think some of that is just gonna, you know, it's it might just take some time. Um, I mean, this stuff is all really fresh. I mean, it's pretty raw, and I think that you know you're you're probably it wouldn't be a shock if they go through six to 12 months where they're just not acquiring the same level of talent based on what is being said about them on the recruiting trail. Right. Um, the hope I guess would be that, that that slowly changes over time. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be, no matter what was going to happen, I think this was going to be a, a little bit of a tough season coming up. Um, but but yeah, I think the concern is just long term what this does to to Creighton's image. I mean, this is I don't have to tell you, I don't have to tell your listeners, but this this is the type of thing that that just gives people serious pause uh, when they're choosing a school, no and it's question. just gonna it, it's gonna be a deal breaker for a lot of guys. Maybe not you know maybe not twenty percent of recruits, but but certainly. Uh, I think a significant, you know, a significant portion of the kids that you're after are just going to say, well, okay, I have 10 schools on my list. I'm looking for reasons not to choose, you know, those schools so I can, so I can get my list down to two or three. Here's an easy one not to go to Creighton, you know, and and that's the type of thing that just worries you a little bit. Um, This type of quiet, you know, acquisition period, would not have been a big deal five or 10 years ago. You just accept the, you'd embrace the, the rebuild and, you know, lean into your young players. Uh, But, but in this era of college basketball, where there's so much movement, you, I agree with you, you would think that there would be uh, some people that would see this, these lineup openings at Creighton and say, Hey, I could play right away there. Yeah. And it also doesn't help that, you know, Obviously, you got to hire. Oftentimes, you got to hire assistants before you can continue to recruit, and so there was that element of it too. Like, why, while you're you're got to you know attack the transfer portal, you're having to hire Ryan Miller and hire Jalen Courtney Williams, and so there's just a, there were a lot of things working against Creighton over the last month, and maybe now that those guys are in place, things will kind of kind of pick up. Um, yeah, and, and Nick, I do think that. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to cast a, a completely negative light on this because I think what Creighton did you know, in the NCAA tournament is really going to have a long-term impact. I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> you just can't, you can't manufacture uh, those accomplishments. You just have to get through those thresholds, you know, those barriers. And uh, I think the fact that Creighton was able to, to get to the second weekend is, is going to make it easier for the next teams to do that. Um, and so even though, you know, there's, there's sort of a, uh, I guess a little bit of a stain on this past season. Uh, you do, I think, have to acknowledge that that Creighton made made big strides here in the last two years. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a Big East regular season championship banner hanging in the arena, and now a Sweet Sixteen banner. I mean, that's it, enormous. I mean, these are arguably, probably the the two best seasons in Creighton basketball history just unfolded, and so. You know, un- you know the the what happened with in the locker room. You know, cast such a big shadow that people I think have forgotten about that element of it. And so there's a lot of different things to consider when kind of digesting Creighton. But I wanted to get your take on it. Um, do you got? I, I'm sitting there like, hey, you know, all right, I'm doing the chat. I'm like, hey, a lot of Nebraska football. Check, check, check. All right, got to ask him about a Creighton basketball thing. And I get to a Nebraska basketball topic or question or angle, and I kind of struggled to find one. I guess is it. 
is is it Bryce McGowan's fever that is the angle for Hoiberg heading into to year three? What is what what is interesting to you about Hoiberg heading into next season? Just if he can get pieces to fit together, uh, I think you know he's got a lot of old guys, and now he's you know his best players are arguably really young guys, and I think when you're trying to put that together, it can be a real challenge. Um, you know, how do you, for instance, how do you make sure that, that Bryce McGowan, that you're creating a culture in which Bryce McGowan's is thriving at the same time while you have, you know, 22, 23, 24 year old guys on your roster right. who, who are, <laughs> you know, are trying to win and they're trying to prepare for professional basketball. And I think that's just, you know, that's going to be a, a bit of a challenge. Um, I think their talent is, is pretty intriguing. I mean, it's, I don't know if we should compare it to, to the end of the Tim miles era where they had, you know, some, the Glenn Watson group, but, but I think it is, it does put them closer to on par with, with what they're going to see in the big 10 next year. Uh, I, I still would like to see a Hoiberg team sort of play like a Hoiberg team where they're actually making jump shots. Um, I, I still, I'm going to be a little skeptical of that, but I think in terms of what they were able to acquire this off season, uh, in the context of how bad they've been the last two years is pretty extraordinary. I mean, you just yeah. to have a recruiting class like that after two really, really bad years, uh, that's just, that was not, that was not foreseen or predictable by me. And I, and I, I certainly thought that there was a scenario where it went so badly this past season, uh, that they were going to have to basically start over again, yes. you know, that they were going to have another wave of exodus. Uh, and that didn't really happen. I mean, they lost some guys who, who I think, um, you know, were kind of smaller pieces, but, but for the most part, they brought their best guys back and they're bringing, you know, probably the, the most talented guys are, are newcomers. If they can figure out a way to piece it all together, I think they can be a middle of the pack, big 10 team. We'll get you out of here on, I kind of wrote, Three questions down that are kind of uh, a little more fun to uh, to to get you on your way. I I was thinking about because Steph is still Steph's having just a. I mean, this is like is there a more fun guy to watch than Steph when he's rolling right now? I mean, he again the he beat Utah last night, had like thirty six. He had forty nine the other day. I mean, it's just it's he's incredible. But I was thinking about about this question for you: which which athlete post Jordan and Tiger? Let's just let's exclude those two. Which athlete between LeBron, Tom Brady, and Steph is the most unlikely to be replicated moving forward, in your opinion? Good question. I think um, – I don't mean to demean Steph Curry, who's my favorite athlete on earth, uh, but I do feel like what he's done and the way the game is changing is going to open the door for a lot of Steph Curry's. Okay. Uh, there, there's not, I'm not saying anybody's going to be as spectacular, but I think that's going to be, you know, kind of the new model of way of playing. And, and so for instance, you know, I think you're going to have a lot of guys who are making 10, three pointers in a game. Um, that's, uh, he's just sort of opened the door, I think, to a new – I think he might go down as as the most influential basketball player of my life when this is all over mm-hmm. because just the way that he's changed the game or, or helped change the game. Um, Brady is such an odd case because of how old he is and how he's done it with such, you know, such a low level of athleticism. 
Um, I think if you, you know, if you saw Tom Brady playing in a flag football game, you know, a men's flag football <laughs> game in town, you probably wouldn't even like, he probably wouldn't even stand out to you. Right. right. <laughs> um, LeBron, I think, is extraordinary just because also his longevity and also just the, the durability, the, the ability to do it at such a such a high level for so long under extraordinary pressure. I don't think anybody's faced the same, you know, spotlight or pressure that LeBron has. So I think I would probably lean LeBron James. Okay. Um, but I think Brady, Brady is sort of the biggest mystery to me. It's like, how the hell does that guy keep doing it? Yeah. I know, I, because as I wrote that question down, I do feel like Steph's the obvious first one to kind of say, no, probably not Steph. But at the same time, like, this guy's going to shatter, shatter every shooting record to the point where, I don't know, man. I mean, basketball's been going on for a long time, and, like, what he's doing from a shooting standpoint is, like, he's not just better, he's light years better than anyone else. And... I mean, you can make a case that one specific skill, like he is going to go down in history. It's like Steph Curry's better at shooting than any athletes better at one specific thing ever. And the question, the question though, Nick, is how will that be true ten years from now, or is he opening up a gate? You know that that so many players after him are going to follow through. Um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not giving him enough credit there, but I I I, I think I am sort of giving him credit because. Yeah, you he's know, he's blazing I, I the trail. I recognize yeah. him as a trailblazer, yeah. but I just I don't know. I think he's perhaps you know opening up a world in which there will be a lot of Steph Curry copycats. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's probably true. I mean, even even you know Dame is a is Steph Curry ish. You know, yeah. like I mean, it's not like there is anyone in the league that's even close to what he is. You know, there really is anybody that's like LeBron. You know, I mean. And I just think Brady, it's like, who's going to play till their mid-40s and have this many Super Bowl rings and do it at a high level late into his 40s? I just, I don't know. The odds are so greatly stacked against you to replicate Tom Brady's career. But yeah, I tend to I tend to think it's Braun, but I don't know, man. Those the other, the, I just, those three guys are, are intriguing in, in their own individual ways. Yeah, I agree. I, I think what, what I admire so much about LeBron is just the, um, the mileage on those tires, yeah. you know, the fact that he's, you know, played in so many NBA, final, NBA finals that he's always, you know, the, the most important person on the floor that he's always, you know, he's always relied upon to play a great game. If his team is going to win, um, you know, the NBA is full of guys who are 24, 26, 28 years old, who are, who are ridiculous athletes. And yet somehow his athleticism, even at age 30, Five thirty-six, you know, is still still holds up. I just think the the longevity of James, even more than Brady, I think the longevity of James to me is is impressive. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by White Castle Roofing. White Castle can handle everything from replacements to repairs, and a White Castle Roofing expert can come out to your home and give you an honest assessment of your roof, even if that means nothing needs to be done. One of the best decisions I've made is to go with White Castle Roofing when my roof had some hail damage back in Omaha. And listen, when it comes to your roof, you don't want to mess around. You need people you can trust, and trust me, you can trust White Castle Roofing. When I had some hail damage, working with White Castle was smooth, it was easy, and most importantly, it was done right. If you're like me, 
way out of my element with this stuff. So I need people that communicate every step of the way from start to finish. White Castle did just that. They're all about quality. They're all about craftsmanship. The crews are knowledgeable. They care about the details. And cleanup is a top priority. And when it's all finished, the roof looks great. It's going to last four years. So whether it's for your home or your business, make the smart move and go with White Castle Roofing. Check them out, whitecastleroofing.com. That's whitecastleroofing.com. White Castle Roofing, built with trust, proven by time. You know what's amazing is I think that in my lifetime, the best individual basketball performance I've ever seen from one player was LeBron James in a game he lost. Yeah. It was game, game one of, I think it was the 2018 NBA Finals, against KD, Clay, Steph. He had 51. It was a game where George Hill, he gets George Hill a layup. George Hill gets fouled. And it was a game where J.R. Smith forgot the score and got a rebound. Right. And it like, I, it's the best game I've ever seen a human being play. You know, and I was, I was not a LeBron James fan or admirer. I mean, I certainly respected him, but I was not an, an admirer until he went back and faced Golden State in those first NBA finals. Uh, with the Cavs where yeah. it was just like, it was like five against one. You know, it was like, <laughs> right. it, you know what it was, Nick? And this goes back to your karate kid thing, uh, which is maybe my favorite movie. Yeah. It was, uh, it was the alley scene uh, where Cobra Kai in their skeleton costumes yeah. are all going after Miyagi and Miyagi's <laughs> just, you know, kicking these guys in the nuts and the yes. chest and everything else that LeBron is Miyagi in that scenario. Right. And, and during, you know, facing Durant and Curry and Thompson and Green in those NBA finals, I really came to be a LeBron admirer in a way that I was not before. Okay, next question. Best, best pro career of these three guys. Kyle Korver, Alex Gordon, Levante David. And even though David's because obviously he's still going, but is there one, is there, how, how would you kind of rank those, those three careers? Well, I think I think I would give a nod to David um, because, first of all, I think he, you know he's got the championship now, which helps a lot. Yep. Um, I think he's just been a little bit more consistently great. Gordon was Gordon maybe has the best story. Agreed. Um, but Gordon was you know he really had a had a significant slump the last five years of his career. Um, and you know, he's, David's not to that stage of his career yet. So maybe, maybe he'll sort of be in the same boat, but I think David's, uh, consistency, um, I think similar to the other guys and that he kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Corver is, is the most unlikely story just because of how long he played and, you know, the types of, uh, times, types of games that he played in, you know, there for a long time, Nick, he was, he was the one of three players left from the 2003 draft class. It was LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, and Kyle Korver. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I sort of think Korver's career is is maybe the most unlikely, but I think David will probably have the best career in totality. Yeah. Last thing, you're out of here, Dirk. This is like the most like low hanging fruit question, but it's kind of fun. Uh, favorite Nebraska football game of all time is what? Well, I think, I think the, and and this has to me been confirmed through time. Okay. Uh, I think the, the most important one and the best one was, was the, the orange bowl win over Miami, the national championship game in, you know, 
New Year's Eve or New Year's night, 1994, 95. Yep. Um, because I think the way the game that played out, who the opponent was, the significance to the program at the time, uh, I just think it's going to be hard for Nebraska ever to beat that. Ever. I, I just can't imagine a scenario where there was a better game that played out in a more fulfilling way than that one did. I mean, there have obviously been games that had more uh, more incredible endings. You know, there's been a, a Hail Mary and, um, you know, more dominant wins. The the Florida National Championship win the next year. Uh, the Missouri game, you know, with Davison's kick is, yeah. is once in a lifetime. But I just don't think anything compares to the fulfillment and satisfaction and long-term importance of that uh, Miami National Championship game. Couldn't agree more. That, that's mine. I mean, and it was confirmed. Bo and I were doing this. Uh, we were doing these Husker Classic recaps and uh, during kind of COVID and the pandemic and, and rewatching that game. It's just all the, the way the game plays out, all the it all it all comes rushing back to you. And I'm with you. I just don't know. That's like out of a you know, it's like Daniel LaRusso doing the kick on yeah. like it's literally like out of a movie. Like if you handed yeah. that script to Hollywood, they'd be like yeah, this is maybe a little too Hollywood cheesy here, you know, like, like that, but that's what happened that night, taking down Warren Sapp and those guys. That's my favorite. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and you know, the game of the century obviously is, is the most famous, I think Nebraska win. Uh, there's no think to it. It just is. Yes. But, um, but, but when you consider how that Miami game played out um, and all the, the skeletons in the closet leading up to it and all the scars, you know, that Nebraska had been through the previous 11 years. I think the best game, like just the best pure game, um, you know, if you're going to sit down and watch a game with all the storylines, uh, I think the best game was actually the loss against Miami, uh, the two-point conversion yeah. game. If you just sit down, I would encourage any Nebraska fan to just sit down and watch that whole thing sometime. I know you've done it. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> that game was just wild. Nuts. Um, and, you know, Rosier gets hurt and, uh, there's just all sorts of fryer drops, the touchdown pat. There's all sorts of things that happen in that game, but, uh, the fumble ruski, but, but I think, you know, most momentous win had to be on that same field 11 years later. You know, I mean, we are now we're way in the weeds here, but do you, uh, one thing, if, if I ever talk, got it, got to interview Tom Osborne, I'd ask him and he's probably, been, I mean, at this point, what question hasn't been asked to Tom Osborne, but Irving Fryer's dropped touchdown. Was there ever a point with however much time was left that he wouldn't have gone for two? Basically, what I'm at, like if Fryer catches that ball, I want to say there was, there might have been north of 60 seconds left. At least it was around that. Is that enough? Like, does, does did the clock have any bearing on whether or not he was actually going to go for two or not? I've always wondered that. Like, if Fryer catches that ball, do they kick the extra point? I, I, I wonder. Nick, let me go deeper in the weeds. Um, so I would say 10 years ago, maybe I was, I had written about something analytical, something sort of along these lines and a, a local math professor, I think is what he was, sent me a letter, uh, that he had actually sent to Osborne in the eighties or nineties, um, where he presented a scenario, he basically broke down how Osborne screwed up, and 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 he's right. He's in fact right that down thirty-one seventeen as Nebraska was when they scored the first touchdown in the fourth quarter. Uh, that you know when it was at thirty-one twenty-three that they should have went for two at that point 
because if, you know, that's the way the NFL would do it right now. They've sort of come around to this too. But um, if they'd gone for two at that point, you know, you're either down 31-23 and then you go for two on the next touchdown to tie it. Um, or you, you know, you get it the first time and then you only need an extra point to win the next time. Um, because the, the tie in that scenario, if you miss it the first time and get it the second time, you know, then the tie is, is not, is not a cop out, you know, it's right. not, uh, it's true. It's not, it's not people saying, Oh, you weren't trying to win the game. So there was a, a sort of a tunnel there where Osborne could have kind of had it best of both worlds. I never thought about uh, but that. But I think when you're, yeah, <laughs> when it's... you're, when you're analyzing the, the way that the game might play out in the last seven minutes, uh, I'm not sure that that's a decision that you think about when, you know, when you have 30 seconds to, to make a play call. Wow. I never thought about that going for, that's two what the it... NFL would do now. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. That's the analytical way. I still can't believe Jeff Smith scores on fourth and fourth down on an option. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's that, that is also like out of a, that's Daniel LaRusso kicking Cobra Kai and like, it's just for it to be that play. I mean, it just goose, I got goosebumps even thinking about it. Like when he hits the corner and gets in there, it is, it's pandemonium. Like it is, I urge everybody it's on YouTube. Like if there are two games you need to go, you need to go watch the 83 game we're talking about. And then you need to go watch the 94 national title game, the winner of Miami. If you want, like, me and you need to, we need to teach a class at Nebraska called just Nebraska football history. And those are just like, we just do deep dives on those games. It'd be great. Nick, think about how many kids in Nebraska grew up run, running the option in the backyard uh, and how nobody, and truly nobody does that today. Like, I know. That, you know, at recess, at my brother and I in the backyard all the time, it was just like, Okay, your quarterback, I'm running back, right. option right, you know, and like, oh, you pitched it behind me. Oh, you pitched it ahead of, you know, it's like right. you're, you're trying to execute it at the same level of Turner Gill and Jeff Smith. Yeah. Uh, and, and I can't imagine that kids are doing that on the playground no. today. I, I, I think about, you know, because it's a pretty, you know, it's obviously a high risk offense, but I, in fourth grade tackle football, I was running the option with Bo Root. Like we are like the helmets don't even, you know, those days, like helmet don't even fit. you. You can't even like see, and we're running the option, but that's what you did. That's yep. what you, that's what you did in, in the state of Nebraska in the nineties. That's how it was done. You know? Well, no, it was, uh, the, the fact that you guys started running fullback traps out of it. That's, you know, that's where it really got creative. So yeah, I know. Right. Tons of wrinkles when you're 10 years old. I love it. I kept you way longer than I thought I was going to keep you. I'm sorry, Derek, but this is, uh, this is what happens when we, uh, is your boy still sleeping? He's still sleeping. Uh, okay. My guess is he woke up, he grabbed a binky, popped it back in and he's good to go. There's he nothing better. Have like three binkies in his mouth. Oh well, there's nothing better when I go in to 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 get him, and there are times he has a binky in his mouth and he's holding a binky in each hand. I mean, dude is just <laughs> strapped with binkies, you know. And you're like, wow, 25 years from now, that's going to be a bush light. <laughs> that's 100. We're going to be double fisted bush lights, you know. That's that's how it is. I love it. Dirk Chatlin, Omaha World Herald, Omaha.com. Read his stuff. Uh, Dirk, you're the best man. Thank you. Okay, take care, Nick. All right, my thanks to Pella. If you're thinking about a new window or a new door, now is the time. Check them out online on the web at PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And uh, my thanks to my good friends at Runza. Best fries on the planet. Great burgers. Cheap Runza. Delicious. The food is simply fantastic. Runza makes it all better. A Huda Media Production.